from Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. And if you want to follow, it's on page 935. And if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take this as our gift to you. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come here from far away. And the disciples answered him, How come can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to eat before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to, to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Hey, truly, thanks be to God for his wonderful word. That's what we need most today. We're going to be actually uh, going at somewhat of a um, quicker pace than you might be used to from me. I think it's not, uh, it's not um, uncommon for us to take three verses at a time, let alone 21. And some of you are like, are we going to get out for lunch? Yes, you will. But nonetheless, I'm really excited to look at these three passages that I think are interconnected. This will be uh, in a really important way. And this will be the last time that we are in Mark uh, until the fall. We're going to be taking a break starting in June uh, to go through the Psalms. Is a been a tradition of ours for some time, going about 10 psalms at a time, so that eventually we'll get through all 150 to spend our summer focused in what has been God's people's hymn book. It's their prayer book, and being a fly on the wall and listening to what does it look like to live, to talk with, to, to what, is it, what does it look like to have a life of faith that talks to God honestly about the variety of things that it experiences. We're going to be in uh, the book of Psalms this summer, and I am pumped. But we're going to 
Still, we have more to look at in Mark. Now, these three passages are connected, at least on the surface, by a really important theme of bread. You probably saw, heard, if you were listening in, I know we didn't have the verses on the screen this time, but that first miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, in which Jesus multiplies bread for a crowd of about 4,000. And then the second section, in which he ends up in a battle with the Pharisees, who he criticizes as demonstrating um, the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven being the rising agent for bread. And then finally, the last piece in which he uh, warns his disciples, and all they can think about is their lack of bread, the one bread, loaf of bread that they had brought in the boat. We're going to look at each of these in turn, but they're actually linked by something more important than this image of bread, and it makes me just hungry thinking about this. But nonetheless, it is about faith. It's about the nature of faith. But more importantly, about a crossroads of faith that we encounter, every one of us, If you are to listen seriously to Christ, Christ will present a crossroads for us. And he presents it whether it's to those who are skeptical or those who are indifferent or those who consider him their friends. To be his friends, I'm sorry, to be his closest friends. This crossroads is presented to each one of us and how we navigate this crossroads is of utmost importance. But before we get there, I want to back up And I want to, uh, we're going to look at our text today, these three parts, um, by way of a little bit of a, I guess, an image I want you to have in mind of two paths, okay? So breaking off from one another. The image I get is of, uh, if you've seen Lord of the Rings or read the book, Gandalf standing in front of two ways in which he's not sure which way to go. Super nerdy, I know. But the first path we're going to look at is the path of faith, and the second we're going to look at is the path of unbelief. Path of faith in the path of unbelief, and then we're going to look at gospel crossroads together. But let's start with that first. And again, I hope you keep your Bibles out, fingers on the passages, because we're going to be looking at some of the exact words that John Mark uses. And one of the miracles that Jesus is famous for is where we are going to start. But I have to tell you, if you have been reading along with us in Mark, this feels a bit like deja vu. You might find yourself wondering, if you've been reading Mark up to this point, or been with us for our sermons the last few weeks, haven't we already read something like this? Um, It's actually right. That actually turns out to be right. Now, some of you may not have encountered that, and that's perfectly fine, but just look back to Mark chapter 6, and there is a subheading in in verse 30. What does it say? Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then in Mark chapter 8, what do we find? Jesus feeds the 4,000. It doesn't take long in listening in on these passages to notice some very strong similarities between the two of them. Both take place out in the wilderness. Both mention Jesus' compassion on the crowds. Both include incredulous disciples wondering how it might be possible to feed a crowd of this size. Both include then a miraculous multiplication of bread and fish. And both include several baskets of leftovers. It's no wonder that many, sec- some, many scholars who have uh, studied this have concluded that the gospel writers got a little bit scrambled here. You know, they're well-meaning, but as they're recalling the events, um, the, surprising, the, the, uh, the similarities between the two of them and the surprising forgetfulness of these disciples, after all, they've just seen Jesus feed 5,000. Why would they doubt that he could feed a, cl- a crowd of smaller 
size. These details have led some scholars to conclude that in the retelling, one miracle somehow became two miracles. But it's actually just one, and we should either leave the first or the second beside. What should we do with this? Well, that might be plausible if John Mark wouldn't have, hadn't have relied on so much of his work, he hadn't based it upon so much eyewitness testimony from one of the disciples who would have been there, Peter himself. So would be, that would be understandable to dismiss this as just a, a retelling of the first if it wasn't based on eyewitness testimony. And second, and this is, I think, a little bit more important, there are some significant differences between the two that John Mark, in making them sound so much so similar in his retelling, is showing something that is consistently pictured about Christ, but then it's the differences, if you'll excuse the pun, that make all the difference. There is one difference particular that I want us to notice here, and that is the difference in audience. The first miracle takes place on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, in a region that was primarily Jewish. The second miracle takes place on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis, a region that has been traditionally linked with Gentiles. In fact, the link of this territory and this miracle with primarily a Gentile audience goes all the way back in church history to the times of Augustine. They've seen a link here that is really important for us. In fact, the last few miracles we've looked at is Jesus's, include Jesus' interactions with Gentiles specifically. Now, why is that very, I mean, why is that interesting? I mean, some of us might just say, well, that's a cool detail to jot down, but there's actually a really important purpose behind this that I think ends up being very practical for us. You know, the, in the first century, it, it turns out that this would have been very, very controversial. It has to do with the crowd itself. Let's, let me talk about one surprising element there. So the crowd in Mark's gospel is not particularly a positive thing. I mentioned this at several points, but when Jesus interacts with the crowds, it seems as if he sees them as an interruption to his ministry. You know, isn't that interesting in a day and age in which we love crowds and how many followers or likes someone gets? Jesus sees the crowds uh, somewhat ambivalently or sometimes with great irritation. But then here, Jesus speaks of the crowd very positively. They, this crowd seems to have, an, unlike the feeding of the 5,000, has been with Jesus not just for one day, but for three days. In fact, it's possible they've spent these three days in listening to his teaching fasting, which is why they are so hungry here, or have used up their the, any of the possessions that, or any of the, the provisions that they brought along the way. The word also gathered here ends up being very important, because this word indicates something like strong loyalty and commitment to Jesus. So it's weird. We're hearing about these crowds that seem to flock to Jesus, and yet this crowd seems to be different. This one seems to actually be genuinely interested in his claims. They have flocked to him because they see something not necessarily, not just in his miracles, but in his teaching. A large portion of this crowd is also, and this is the surprising element, is not Jewish, it's Gentile, which Jesus makes clear is outside of his target, um, his outside of his primary mission. And in popular opinion, here's why this matters, is Gentiles were considered to be the least likely to be interested in the things of God. 
The Gentiles were pagans. They weren't just enemies of the Jewish people. They were enemies of God. As Jesus himself puts it in a parable he just told, Israel was the children, Gentiles were the dogs. And yet here they are, a crowd made up maybe primarily of Gentiles, drawn to Jesus. And yet none of this is as unexpected as the attitude of Jesus himself. This crowd doesn't just draw near to Jesus. We see Jesus drawn near to them. This is the second surprising aspect of this passage, that Jesus draws near to those who would be considered his enemies. As if to remind us that what separates us finally from God's grace isn't race, isn't gender, isn't background. It isn't what you look like or how long you have been a church person. Jesus' compassion draws near to the very people we are prone to keep at arm's length. He is eager to provide for the sick, for the unclean, even for the enemy. You know, I, I think most of us know that God's grace, at least conceptually, is freely offered to everyone, yet it is common I can just make an aside here, for us to mentally filter those who we think are more likely to respond to God from those who aren't. Those who are pretty certain would never be interested in what God offers. We tend to filter out. It's, I think, a way of protecting ourselves. After all, who wants to be rejected? Of course you don't want the offer that you make in the gospel. You don't want to offer that and then to be turned down. Speaking about your faith in Jesus and the offer he makes in the gospel is always inherently uncomfortable, particularly when the person you are talking to is risky. Why turn up that risk? And so we mentally filter out those who we suppose are unreachable. But if we really are to take Jesus' example here seriously, can I just be honest with you? How How dare we make that determination on our own? How dare we conclude who would be receptive to his grace? After all, here we we see that no one is beyond the reach of Jesus' compassion. It's more likely, it's more than likely here we have someone in mind when we think about this. Someone you think to yourself, I mean, but really, to be honest, them? Whether it is your estranged grandchild or the Muslim neighbor next door, or that classmate or coworker that no one seems to like. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus's compassion. And isn't that good news for us, just to be honest? I think about this personally, and I know that I'm not exactly the sharpest tool in the shed, nor are you. God's grace, if you are a Christian, your conversion would have shocked God's people in Jesus' day. They would have never thought someone like you could have ever found your way into the people of God. No one would believe that you could get in on this. And some of you are thinking, you have, you have no idea if you knew my story. That's the story of every Christian, is not that they come as those who are polished and perfected, those who have performed better than others. They come as beggars who are pointing one another to the bread. And that is an essential understanding for every Christian who becomes one. Instead, Mark tells us, instead of Mark just telling us, here's here's really important, of of how Jesus felt, did you notice Jesus' words? Look back at chapter 8. 
in the feeding of the 5,000, it just simply tells us that Jesus felt compassion. But here, what does Jesus say? He says specifically, I have compassion on the crowd. The word indicates something like a gut feeling, a, uh, a, to be moved in your core, to be moved in your bowels. I know that's kind of weird, but a kind of response that is so overwhelming and powerful that it motivates you to respond. You have to respond to the needs in front of you. And instead of, notice here that Jesus, instead of being confronted by the disciples as he was in the previous miracles, he is teaching all day and the disciples say, hey, everybody's getting hungry, it's time to send him home. Here, Jesus is the one who picks up on it. He's the one who sees their hunger and he tells the disciples, we have to respond to this. He notices and responds and he confronts his disciples with their hunger, to which they then ask, how can anyone possibly feed this people? Or in other words, who can possibly? possibly feed these people. Now, the answer to that question, of course, based on what we've seen of Jesus, as well, Jesus can. But isn't it interesting that the disciples don't expect that he will? Now, I think this has to do more than him just, than them just being forgetful, oh, that I think that's here and convicting. I think that they have a clear enough sense of Jesus to know that Jesus isn't just some vendor of miracles. We read the Gospels on fast forward, but when Jesus does act in a miraculous way, it always seems to be unexpected, doesn't it? We have to remember that disciples are still themselves very much trying to understand Jesus. We're going to get to this in a second. They're trying to understand where Jesus gets his power from, but still a miracle takes place nonetheless. As Jesus multiplies seven loaves and what is said to be a, fall, a few small fish, uh, the equivalent of a grocery bag, no less, into a couple truck ro- truckloads of provisions, passing them out to the crowds. Enough of a, feed, a feast to feed 4,000 people. In fact, the feast is so massive that everyone is stuffed, everyone is satisfied, and when they are all satisfied, They collect all of the leftovers to fill enough of seven baskets full, seven doggy bags to be taken home from this feast. Jesus' compassion, in other words, breaks open the dam of overwhelming provision, the kind of provision that comes from God himself, a small taste of God's eager, generous mercy upon those who come to him in faith. He is not stingy with you. If that's in your perspective on God, God isn't stingy with his love and grace. He is happy to extend it to all who come to him in faith. Yet before we move on, I want to notice a really important thing. A, I want us to notice the order of these events here. After all, it's going to become vitally important for what comes next. Notice here, what's the order in which the miracle takes place? The miracle happens only after the pursuit of the crowd. It's only after the pursuit of the crowd that he pulls back his sleeves and performs this miracle. It's only after that they had already drawn near to Jesus that he provides for the crowd in such a dramatic way. Not because they demanded it or even expected something like this, but after they sought him in faith. We'll get to why this is so important in a second, but it has to do with what we then see, well, really the opposite of in the Pharisees. Let's consider the path now of disbelief. You couldn't have more of a drastic contrast, you see, between the Pharisees and this Gentile crowd. Notice verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Now, we're not entirely sure how much time takes place between these two events, but still, the Pharisees right away come out swinging, don't they? Up to this point, the religious leaders have, have only grown more and more at odds with Jesus. The longer we read in Mark's gospel, the more resistant they become. And now Mark tells us they are openly arguing with him. They start out arguing with him, demanding, not just seeking, but demanding a sign from heaven. What exactly is going on here? After all, hasn't Jesus done enough to show off his power? We just have this right after a pretty fantastic miracle. And they want another miracle to, uh, to show off after the one he just performed? I mean, is that what's going on here? I don't think so. I actually think it's something more important. The supernatural power, you see, of Jesus had already become well-known among the Pharisees. They had heard the rumors. They had seen some of these signs done in front of them. They didn't deny there was something unique about the works that Jesus was doing, that they couldn't be simply explain, explained by, natural, uh, by, by a trick of the light or some natural circumstance. They just denied that this power, wherever it came from, they denied that it came from God. They denied that this power could actually be a sign of God's favor. In fact, back in Mark chapter 3, we find the scribes, another group of religious leaders responsible for studying and teaching the law, they had begun to attribute Jesus' power not to God or to some tricky sleight of hand, some magic trick, but to much darker spiritual forces. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. The rumor was that Jesus, how was he able to heal? How was he able to, to make these kind of miracles possible? Not because he was empowered by God, but because he was empowered by the prince of darkness himself. And it turns out this rumor had not gone away. In fact, it's become something of a default assumption among them. Just as Satan first deceived Adam in the Garden of Eden, now they suspected that Satan, the prince of demons, was deceiving yet again only through Jesus, drawing the crowds not to God but away from God. After all, Jesus had been fairly public about his disagreement with these Pharisees, and they were the responsible protectors of Israel. How could Jesus be in the right if he disagreed with them? Jesus had made himself their enemy, and they figured, in so doing, had also made himself the enemy of God as well. Which means that the sign they are looking for isn't simply another miracle, but a public sign to prove that God really is on your side, Jesus. This actually looks back to the book of Deuteronomy, way in the beginning of your Bible in the Old Testament, and the expectations that God had given for smoking out a false prophet. You see, in Israel's history, there were those who claimed to speak on God's behalf and actually didn't. They led many away from God, just like some do today, and had a lot of Bible verses to uh, emphasize and to defend their claims. Under the Old Covenant, one of the ways to tell whether they represented who they said they did then was to actually see if the miraculous signs they promised to come to pass actually did come to pass. If not, if they claimed a sign and it didn't happen, then they were to be taken out of the, outside the camp and stoned to death. Jesus understands, in other words, the threat here. 
The problem is their request for a sign from heaven, even though you see evidence in the Bible, the problem is, is that very request doesn't actually come from a place of honest interest and, and, and investigation. It doesn't even come from a place of honest confusion. Rather, it betrayed conclusions that they had already come to. They assumed that he couldn't be who he said he was. They couldn't be sent by God himself to bring about God's kingdom. They assumed already that Jesus was a charlatan, a deceiver, and they just needed to prove it in front of all the doubters. You see, in the Bible, I think that it reveals not one kind of doubt, but two. The first kind of doubt says, you know, I'm not really sure I understand this, and so I'm not really sure that it is true. I'm not really certain I, I do know these things. I mean, like on a scale of one to ten, I'm maybe like a five or six. The first kind of doubt actually wrestles with God and his claims, wanting and seeking understanding. And we have many examples in the Bible of this kind of doubt, even from many so-called heroes of the faith. Abraham, Moses, David, Job, all who take God's word seriously and say, I know you say this is true, and I, and I do believe it, and yet I can't see it here. I'm struggling to see it here. I'm struggling to actually believe that this could be true. That first kind of doubt is one we see all over the Bible, even from those who are pictures of faith. But then there's a second kind of doubt that I think we see here, and it's much more dangerous. A kind of doubt that says, I doubt because I don't really want this to be true. I don't I doubt because I don't really like it. This kind of doubt looks for reasons to reject, collects them, it hoards them away. It says with crossed arms to God, prove yourself. It reminds me of a classic illustration that perhaps you have heard of a college philosophy professor who stands um, on, uh, in front of the class intent on showing just how unbelievable the, uh, uh, that uh, theism is or belief in God, let alone Christianity, and says something along the lines, all right, so I'm going to give God a chance to prove himself, takes out a piece of chalk, and says, all right, so God, uh, if you're listening and you really want to show off that you're real, um, I'm going to drop this piece of chalk and I want you to stop it before it hits the floor. So what does he do? He waits, all everybody's watching, and he drops the chalk and it clatters and breaks on the floor. Point proven. God doesn't exist or he doesn't care. There's actually a third option. You could, instead of proving that God doesn't exist or God doesn't care, you could be just proving that God isn't a dancing bear or performing monkey. That God doesn't perform at our whims. That God is not bound to our most subjective wants. That God doesn't actually, uh, he's, that God is not somehow needy for our praise and so wanting somebody to believe in him and affirm him that he's willing to do whatever it takes to make that possible. This is God we're talking about. A God who is sovereign, who is above his creatures, who does not need anything that they have to offer him. And so perhaps in that illustration, all you've proven is that God is not a dancing bear or performing monkey. This, here's why, okay, here's one of the reasons I want to point this out, is I think that Jesus 
and what he demonstrates to the, to the Pharisees, his denial. I think that Jesus gives us something of the same. I don't think he doesn't come through on this sign because he's somehow uncaring or he's somehow afraid that God won't come through for him. I think we see something instead in his sigh. What is this sigh? It's a sigh of indignation. It's a sigh of exasperation. It's a sigh of, oh, you've got to be kidding me. A sigh deep in his spirit, a, a different kind of gut feeling than compassion. He knows, you see, what lies behind their request, what their request reveals, and he refuses to perform on command. Why? Well, probably because, one, he knows they would find a way to explain around the sign, or it wouldn't be long before they would demand another sign to prove it, just like the generation of Israelites who wandered the wilderness with Moses, demanding Moses show off again and again and again if he really wanted to keep them around. Notice the language here of this generation links it with that one. But two, I think the reason that Jesus refuses to perform on demand is because faith doesn't work that way. It's not finally won over finding an airtight argument or supernatural sign. Faith doesn't take place by simply finding enough evidence, someone who can finally give a, an argument that has no defeater, that has no in, that, in which there is no inkling of doubt that's left. In fact, faith instead comes by the sight-bringing, life-giving encounter with Jesus Christ himself. What we finally need is not a great argument. What we need is not an airtight argument, as Tim Keller will put it. We, what we need is an airtight person, and that is exactly what we find in Jesus, but more in this in a second. In verse 15, Jesus gives an uh, a illustration of this doubt, the second kind of doubt, and I think it's, very, it's fascinating. It gets right at its mo uh, why it's so dangerous. What you might call uh, not doubt, but actually unbelief, he calls it leaven. Now, we may not use that term very often, but you ever made homemade bread? Anybody ever made homemade bread or grew up where your parents made or grandparents made homemade bread? There's nothing like it. I remember coming home from school, and my mom, you could just smell it as you walked in the house, the smell of fresh baked bread. Now, if you've ever made bread, you could take that dough. What do you do if you want that dough to rise? You knead into that dough some sort of uh, leavening agent, some sort of rising agent, usually Least, yeast, sorry, not least, yeast. You need a leavening agent to make the bread fluffy. If you don't want that bread to be a cracker, you need leaven. And the thing about leaven is all it takes to get an entire loaf of bread to rise is a very, very small amount of yeast. It only takes the smallest amount to ferment, to work its way through the entire thing. It's no wonder then that leaven was used as a common metaphor for the effects that sin has had on human hearts and on human communities. Sin deadens us to God. Sin crosses our arms. Sin distances us from the truth, causes us to distrust God's voice, and wonder if he really is keeping me back from what would really make me happy, and we collect more and more reasons for it. Jesus gives two examples of this leaven. He sees it in both the Pharisees and, surprisingly, in Herod. We've just read about these two, and both what they hold in common is a common opposition of Jesus. Herod, the Roman tetrarch. But here's 
what's so strange is what in the world could possibly Pharisees, religious teachers, and a government official have in common? You might even say that the Pharisees and Herod, they, well, they didn't clearly like one another. They were enemies. Well, it has to do, again, with this common unbelief, this common posture towards Jesus, an arm-length distance from Jesus, refusing to let his claims have any bearing upon them. In fact, later in Jesus' life, Luke's gospel, another writer of um, a, uh, an account of Jesus' life, Luke tells us that Herod, before Jesus' crucifixion, demanded a sign too. He demanded a sign from Jesus, but not because he's actually taking Jesus' claims seriously, but almost like a magic trick. He wants Jesus to show off. He's heard of the power, and he wants to see it firsthand, but he could care less about the claims that Jesus makes. The Pharisees and Herod, in other words, like some of us, I fear, have an already deeply embedded mistrust of God, looking to be proven wrong, ignoring the evidence God already gives. And I've seen this not just in secular people, but in many religious people who complain that faith would just be easier if God would prove himself, if he would just show up in a burning bush for me or heal my arthritis or give me a girlfriend or keep that person from leaving. And when he doesn't, it doesn't just shake us. It confirms what we already suspect to be true, that God isn't there or he doesn't care. I don't mean to dismiss the, th- dismiss the things that you've been through or the questions that it's brought up, but as I've said before, sometimes all it takes for someone to leave Christianity behind is an unanswered prayer. You know, that unanswered prayer may not confirm what you think it does. It may only prove that God isn't a dancing bear and that he responds the way he does because he sees things that you do not. Again, I want to say that doubt is not necessarily an enemy of faith. It can provide an opportunity for stronger faith. In fact, in the words of Parker Palmer, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, and C.S. Lewis all dealt with their own experience of doubt. Doubt is not necessarily an enemy of faith. If that doubt drives us forward to seek God, to seek understanding, if it drives us toward the truth. But disbelief is an enemy of faith, a kind of posture that is looking to be proven wrong, which crosses its arms and says in the face of the same difficulties, I knew it, I knew you couldn't be trusted. Disbelief is what sin produces, and once it takes root, it doesn't take long to leaven the whole loaf. Those of you who remain skeptical to the gospel, is it possible that sin has had a leavening effect on you? Is it possible that your doubt has to do with this kind of posture of disbelief, saying, God, prove yourself? Let me encourage you, even as you wrestle through your doubts, you look for solutions, let them drive you forward. Doubt your own doubts. Even as you seek reasons for faith, look for the reasons that are behind your very doubt. But still, I want to notice something else here. That warning to beware the leaven. Who is it directed toward? It's not directed to the Pharisees. He just straight up rejects them. He just straight up, he refuses their request, I should say. That warning to beware the leaven, it's directed towards Jesus' closest friends. As if to say, even in those who are closest to to him, he sees the same seeds 
of unbelief already bubbling in their hearts as well. Which brings us to number three, the gospel crossroads. And verse 14, I think we get to the real heart of our passage. And a real tension that has been developing in these last seven, now going on eight chapters of Mark. In fact, the book, um, in, in just a few verses um, after this, the book is going to change directions in a big way. We have the first half of Mark that goes through the middle of chapter 8, and then it, it moves straight to the cross after this. Up to this point, one of the most surprising things in these chapters is how spiritually ignorant Jesus' disciples actually are. Despite the fact that they've spent daily time walking with Jesus in close proximity to Jesus, and they still don't get him. And all of this is revealed in in what I think is a really funny way in how this narrative works. Picture it with me. The disciples, much to their surprise probably, okay, so the Pharisees are picking a fight, and then Jesus says, well, we're leaving, and then gets in the boat, says, come with me, disciples. Oh, okay, and they hurriedly grab their provisions and jump on the boat with him, okay? This is not uncommon for Jesus. It would have been, and many of us are like, oh, it'd be so sweet to go with Jesus as one of his disciples. It would have been so difficult. It would have been so aggravating sometimes. It would have you so often, the disciples are left so often like, I have no idea what he's talking about, do you? Okay, but nonetheless, they get on the boat with him, and uh, perhaps because they're in such a hurry, we don't know, they only remember to bring one loaf of bread. Okay, we don't think, don't think like big loaf, we can pass it around. We're thinking like probably a small handhold loaf. This is not, this is going to feed one person, maybe one belly. And they realize soon into this trip um, that they had forgot to bring more along, more provisions. Now, have you ever had um, a road trip in which you, uh, about six hours in, say, oh man, I totally left that at home, and it's way too late to go back. Okay, so here, you can imagine the whispering starting among the disciples as they prod each other, like, did you bring more bread? Peter, it was your job! Okay, and they get really aggravated at each other. Okay, and then Jesus then teaches about leaven, and uh, this, but the problem is they misunderstand this leaven, and they think, because they're only thinking about their present crisis and insecurity, and so they misinterpret what he's saying and saying, well, that's passive-aggressive, Jesus, thanks, as if Jesus is saying, well, good on you on leaving the leaven behind. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying at all. They miss the point in, of the point of this, of this illustration, something that is meant to get at their own hearts because they can only think in terms of their present crisis. It's as if Jesus is saying, this isn't about bread. I'm trying to warn you about something more important than a lack of provisions. After all, don't you get it? Have you learned nothing from the miracles that I just performed as I just multiplied bread for 4,000 people. You've got one loaf here. Doesn't really matter. Do you know the power that stands in front of you? Stop panicking over your one loaf. But didn't you see the miracles themselves? But more importantly, don't don't you now see me? Do you still not see what the miracles say about me? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you still not understand? Of course they don't. You see, familiarity and proximity to Jesus aren't enough. In fact, I have to tell you, they can be really dangerous. Do you know it's possible to spend your whole life around church stuff and never actually come to understand Jesus? It's possible to think that you get it simply because you stick around when the fact is Your your religious habits may have only deadened you to Jesus, to your need for Christ and the offer that he makes. I realize some of us have never questioned the fact that we might actually understand the gospel and be a Christian. But the author of Hebrews warns a very similar church 
in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Okay, he's referring to, so far as he can see, Christians. Take care, there, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leaving you, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, this passage doesn't, I think, imply that Christians will somehow lose their salvation, but what it does mean is that you and I can only see so much that even in our membership process, which is one of the, one of the ways as, as a local church we try to arrive at some sense of who are the Christians here, who are following Jesus with us, who have made the commitments that the Bible leads us to make to him and to one another, and how do we help them to follow Christ. But even that is no guarantee, no, how, no matter how intentional our membership process is, okay, and despite the fact that there are many Christians who are not members, right? Even that process, here's the problem, is that you will, event, you will have some people who even can speak the right ways, who seem to be, have learned all the rules, who still have never woken up to the fact that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord, have never confessed faith actually to him. That, is, that terrifies me as a pastor, okay? So one of, my, one of my callings is to, in some sense, to confront us with that reality, just as the author of Hebrews is, but more, more importantly, just as Jesus does, that it is possible among those who claim to be Christians, to have some who would reveal an evil, unbelieving heart. It's not too cynical to say, then, that there are some who take their, for, their faith for granted here that perhaps shouldn't. I have to tell you, um, some of the most challenging people for me to pastor are those who have spent enough time around the gospel to become inoculated by it to figure it is primarily for someone else, to become so stuck in our cares and distracted with our other priorities that we miss Jesus' call to us to see, to hear, and to understand. How can we know that we do? How can we know that we are one of Christ's own? It's not through an absence of doubt. It's not simply through trying harder and doing better. The most important question we can ask each one of ourselves, and this is what Jesus calls us to ask today, is what have you done with him? Is he your savior? Do you recognize your real need for forgiveness, and have you rested upon him to provide that salvation that you so desperately need? Have you ever been faced with the fact that you cannot save yourself, and you have rested upon him and what he has done in his cross and resurrection to actually save you? And second, have you taken him in that same motion as your Lord, saying, I have lived enough of my life trying to be in the driver's seat, trying to control it. I hand myself over to you. Even though I don't, all, I don't understand entirely what that's going to mean, I know that I can trust you, and I trust you to lead me. I trust to follow you. You are my master now. That's the question here. Okay, not a life, not are you following the Lord perfectly? None of us can. Not are you absent of doubt, okay? Many, uh, many, many followers, pillars of faith have much doubt as they follow Jesus. It drives them to him. It drives, him, drives them to him. What saves is, the, is coming to Jesus as he called us at the beginning of Mark in repentance and faith to believe the gospel that I am more, my condition is far worse than I've ever dared admit. And that goes for whether you've grown up in the church or not. But because of love, because of Jesus, I am far more loved than I ever dared hope. That is the ground of my identity. That is the only hope for love that I have, is coming to him in faith, though I don't deserve it. That is what saves. This encounter was hardly positive and encouraging, was it? 
it had to be embarrassing. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying to them, okay, so how many baskets did I pick up when I fed the 5,000? Well, 12. Okay, how many did I pick up when the 4,000? Well, seven. I mean, it's just embarrassing. It feels belittling, but it's important. It's confrontational here because all of this is as if he's saying, all of this, all that you've seen, seen here is far, far more than just entertaining you so you could have some good stories to tell. It's about far more than giving you a bit more meaning and hope in the world. It's far more than about alleviating your suffering. It has been to offer you myself. Again, Keller tells of a man who told a pastor he would believe in God if he, would real, if he could just be shown airtight proof of his existence. And the pastor said, read the New Testament. Will that show me an airtight argument? He asked. The pastor answered, no. But God gave us more than an airtight argument. He gave us an airtight person. Friends, even if Jesus' Even Jesus' warning didn't uh, lift the disciples' blindness. They still abandoned Jesus at the night of his betrayal. And it didn't soften the Pharisees. They united with Herod, finally in sending him to his crucifixion. Instead, this airtight person offered you airtight proof of his trustworthiness by living a life that you should have lived, by dying the death that you and I, every one of us, deserve. And, li- and being raised to life that you and I might share that life with him forever. True understanding is not found in an airtight argument or getting a sign from the heaven or by simply hanging around a lot of church stuff. It is found when we can finally see the one that all of this has been about. The only path to faith in seeing and understanding this crucified Savior And this risen Lord, the only path to seeing and understanding him is to see him, the one this is all about. Before I conclude tonight, I do want to give us some more practical considerations because what does it look like to be a church in which which faith is fostered and developed? Well, one, I think it needs to be a place in which we invite a lot of people who are at a variety of different places when they come to a relationship with God in which we invite, welcome, radical honesty and authenticity about where we're at with him. Not so that we can say, wow, that was really brave, brother. Thank you for voicing that question. Move on. But to help them in seeking to make sense of the truth that is found in Christ, pointing him back to him, to making Christ the center of everything we do. But also, I do think it is, we're, we're seeing the need more than ever to be a, be a disciple-making church. What does this mean? What do I mean by this? Well, we're in a society in which we can't take for granted the fact that everybody would take, that would assume the things that we do if you're a Christian about the Bible, or even know these things. We're in a culture in which it's becoming more and more sacrificial to be a public Christian, in which we know less and less about the things of God and his word, okay, in which you can't just take for granted that your neighbor would know what the Ten Commandments even are. We are in increasingly a biblically illiterate culture, But more than that, we're in a biblically illiterate church. Okay, so not speaking necessarily of Bayless with the target on it, but nonetheless, as a local congregation, if we want to give opportunity for faith, it means we need to give active attention, each one of us, to encouraging and fostering faith in one another. It means that one-on-one discipleship in which you actually 
have invited someone else into your life to be able to grow in godliness beside, to open up the word together, to apply it in serious ways to the heart. That kind of culture of one-on-one disciple-making is, is the only, th- only hope that we have, but really the joy that we really do have for faith to be grown, to be fostered, to be developed. In a church, we expect that together we would continue to grow even in a culture where it's costly to be a Christian as God's people give, him to, give themselves to that, those priorities. A, co- a culture of disciple-making here, not relying on the professionals here. I don't, we don't have the time or really the calling to do it for one another. We want to invite, invest, and help you to do so and to take, opportun- take advantage of the opportunities that we give you here as a church. One is we've got classes now on discipleship, how to study your Bible. We're going to be doing one on how to share the gospel. Take advantage of these. These are tools in your tool belt to be active in what, you're, in what, what God has called us to do. But I also encourage you, if, you're, if uh, we need to bear the responsibility of family disciple-making. Yes, that incur- includes the parents who are raising up kids around the scriptures, who are translating the faith from here to the home. Grandparents as well, as you have the opportunity. But as a church, we, we see the beauty and joy of something like Bayless Kids and encouraging it and volunteering for it and, and, uh, and, and welcoming these little ones, you know, as COVID restrictions are lightning, get down on your knee and give a high five, you know, welcome them, make them feel that this is their church, right? To see that our responsibility to raise up another generation that's going to have different difficulties than we do, but in which the Spirit is going to still work, that God is going to build his church, that we, if we want to see understanding happening, understanding does not happen if we're not talking often and seriously about the gospel itself to one another. All that to say, um, if we want to become this kind of church, I, I want to ask you to pray with me that the Lord would make us a people who are open and authentic about the real junk of our lives and about of our common need for Christ. In fact, one of the metaphors we use here is we are not professionals, okay? We're not put together perfect people. We are but beggars pointing one another where to the bread. But let's pray. Lord, we come to you as those who um, all share that common need, and we pray that we might see it clearly promised and pictured in Jesus, that we wouldn't come to him merely for signs of power to impress us or to add a little bit of meaning to our life, but to come to him as Savior and Lord. And that would be what shines about our church is authentic, humble faith. And Lord, we know that the only hope that we have to do so is as the word is continually proclaimed in public and in private and as Jesus is made the center, would we having ears hear and would we having eyes see and not be those who turn in disbelief and are forever hardened. Lord, would you continue to save as you have always done and would we see the opportunities in front of us to make sense of this good news. And it's for Christ's sake that we pray. Amen.